Narendra Ramu, PhD, is a pianist, musicologist, piano teacher, and concert curator with a particular interest in 20th and 21st century repertoire. She's appeared in many festivals and concert tours in Europe, USA, and Chile. She's extensively researched, published, and lectured on Greek piano repertoire. Her numerous CD recordings for BIS ECM, Naxos, and Athens Music Society include, among others, solo and chamber music works by Nikos Kalkortis, Dimitri Dragatakis, and Constantia Gruzi. She collaborates as project manager for contemporary music projects with Onesis Cultural Center Athens, eager to transmit her knowledge of 20th and 21st century's piano repertoire to a younger generation of performers. She's teaching a yearly workshop on the subject at the Athens Conservatory. Her projects have been supported by the French Ministry of Culture, the British Council, the Fulbright Foundation, and the Center of Hellenic Studies, Harvard University. Mia sat down with Lorenda in the Athens Conservatory to discuss her life, work, and creative process. Lorenda Ramu, welcome to the creative process. Thank you very much. <laughs> so before you were winning pianist, Fulbright scholar, before you traveled to all these countries and as a musician, you were a young girl. Yes. Where, what was your first experience of music? What are your earliest memories? My earliest memories is me practicing the piano at home. I don't come from a musical family. And there wasn't any particular early music memory at home that I can recall that has been important for me. My mother just brought me to the conservatory when I was very young, like five years old, and see how it was going. And it seemed that I was doing pretty well. And as a child, it felt very natural for me. I didn't feel I needed to put any effort in learning the piano. When I was 13, I just started to wonder what it's the meaning of what I'm doing, because I felt that okay, I'm practicing the musical masterpieces that everybody on the planet is practicing. So I, I haven't understood this difference in what is the interpretation. I had no clue about that. So I thought, okay, now I'm learning this Beethoven sonata. So I'm just pressing the keys and a thousand other young people of my age do the same all over the planet. So what's the meaning of that? I, I, I couldn't find any meaning. So I wanted to stop everything. You didn't feel emotionally engaged at that moment? No, no. I was sure that I liked music mm -hmm. in general. Yeah. It was a topic that was interesting for me. Mm -hmm. I was reading a lot about ancient Greek music. I, I, I had visited the archaeological museum mm -hmm. where there was a special ancient music instruments and ancient uh, Greek ancient representation of music. So I knew all this by heart. I mean, I have copied all the information from the museum and I was reading ancient texts. I wanted to find all the musical, you know, information that was there. I was reading about Byzantine music. I mean, whatever was music was, for me, interesting and I was reading about it. So it was not a question if I liked music or not. I did like music, that was clear, but it was not clear for me what was the purpose of studying the piano. I mean, that was not clear at all. I decided to give it one more chance and change teacher. And I went to the class of somebody who was such an inspiring person, who was a great pianist, 
who came also from a great tradition. He was a young student of 13-year-old. He studied in Vienna with someone who was coming from the Liszt tradition. Mm-hmm. And he carried with him this Mitteleuropa, you know, musical tradition. Mm-hmm. And he was an expert in the music of Schumann and Brahms and uh, Beethoven. So this was at the National who, Conservatory who in Athens, and, and his name was Tony. I went very, very quickly from the youngster who didn't know why she was playing the piano to someone really passionate about it. And after each lesson, I was running home to practice what he had told me. And suddenly the whole thing became so creative. I felt that the sound is something that you can malleable and uh, you can have an infinite you know number of possibilities and ways of phrasing of expressing so that opened a whole new area of possibilities and i found this just fascinating at the moment it changed the whole relation i mean this new teacher changed everything and he was encouraging me to go and study abroad so because i came from a french greek family it was easy for me to go to france And then I finished the conservatory just after my 18th birthday. And then I moved to Paris with a scholarship of the French government. And then I started my studies there. So these years in Athens, I was following whatever was happening at the Athens Festival. I mean, all the concerts I could go. I was quite active in the conservatory with uh, organizing things, inviting people. It was very clear for me that it was the most important thing that I would have to do. And I was also learning harmony, counterpoint, all these disciplines. I was just discovering as much music as I could. It's interesting, just going back to speaking of malleable music because for us who aren't musical we just appreciate music you feel music almost as though it is physical as though it has an entity mm-hmm. but it's strange i heard other composers or musicians speak about it in this way that it was a kind of a physical presence and it was for the first time i tried to imagine what goes on inside the musician or the composer's mind like what are you seeing as you compose, as you play different pieces of music? What is that process like? Um, That's a good question. Well, for me, music is a way to relate to the world because music is sound and sound is everywhere around us. And the world makes sense because you have the sounds of everything that are connected somehow. And if you, for example, you look around you and you close your ears without sound, at the end you would have a quite different perception of what's going on around you. But if you close your eyes and you just have the sound, I feel that the sound of an area, whatever happens around you, is closer to the reality or your personal reality than the sight. The sound, for me, makes more sense the world speaks to me as sound rather than as vision. Like um, the spirit of things. The See. spirit of, of things is there a sound. I mean, mm-hmm. I can hear the voice of people and I immediately feel that I know something about this person because of the sound, yes. not because of the sight. More of the sound of the voice. The sounds mm-hmm. speak to me somehow. They're meaningful for me. Now, a musician, through all this training that we have, develops very much what we would call the inner audition. For example, it's when you take a score, you open it, and you can hear it. 
It's like you read a book yeah. and you understand the meaning mm-hmm. of what you read. Then for me, it's the same with the score. I can open a score and then I hear inside my head what's in there. Of course, if it's a very complex thing, I might not have the full information of it. Or if it's a contemporary graphic score with a lot of flattery elements, then it's not very precise, this image that you have. But if it's a piano score or an orchestra score, it can be quite precise. So the creative process is that as a performer, usually you take the score, you read it, or you try it a little bit on the piano, And then you start forming an idea of how you are going to shape this sound. It's like architecture for me. It's like a shape that you have to create, that it's meaningful. For example, it can be, let's say, a slow beginning, and then gradually it gets at the higher point of, uh, of tension. And then there is a release and then to go through the end somehow. What I'm describing now, it's a very classical profile of a musical piece. My work is like I have to find a reason of how each of the elements that I see in the score connects with this kind of general shape. And you can play like ta-ta-tam, but it would be different if you play ta-ta-tam because then you connect it in a different way with what comes after that and it would make better sense, for example. So it's uh, the work, this creative process is... Imagine a full shape, imagine the whole piece of music, how it would 
unfold in time and then find the specific place of each individual element in this so that it serves this idea that you have. And uh, of course this is something that through the work that you do on a piece of music it can change, it can allow you elaborate, it's not something fixed. But you have to start with an idea at the very beginning. I'm not this kind of person who just, you know, play, well, I play and imagine at the same time, play and imagine, play, and it's not just what I hear from the instrument. Mm -hmm. It's my inside audition that guides me through my work. Not only what comes just from the instrument, what I hear on the spot when I'm playing. Yes, so you have to have, well, we call it vision, but it's almost it's an inner vision. I should it's say. an inner vision, absolutely. Yes, and it's, it's so fascinating because as I think of you know, artists in other disciplines as well, they do speak of this having an architecture or being able to see the work of art in its entirety. And I, I think when people are experiencing things in, in an audience, they are a little lost. They, mm. they don't have that. They're still, it's, it's new mm. to them. Whether it's painting, I'm sorry, I'm relating it to other things. Yeah, of course. But yeah. there's this sense, or even someone who's written 600-page book, really, they call themselves back to each one of those pages mm. as an entirety. Mm-hmm. And it's quite a thing to keep in the mind. I don't know how you do it at the muscle memory. I don't know how that works. Well, then it connects with the physical memory, yeah. of course, of the body. Mm-hmm. Because each phrase, each note that you play, it has a muscular memory, a physical memory, let's say a body memory, because Mm -hmm. it's not just the muscle of the the finger, it's in a more wide choreography of the body. I mean, it is a choreography when you play the piano, because the movement is not just the fingers. The fingers are related to the whole arm, to your back, to your posture, to your breathing, to how you're seated. I mean, it's the conscious of the the whole body related to the instrument. So then you kind of memorize the physical sensation Mm -hmm. together with this mental musical sound image that you have and it it makes like one thing at the end so it's in a sense also can be a kind of acting if you're losing yourself in the role of this piece of music so if you could compare some of the different composers works you're preparing now a recital. You've also um, collaborated on pieces in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just describe that process and then contrast them with different, you know, how you escape into those, if I may say, roles, or how do you go there? Hmm. Well, it depends of the composer, of yes. course. I have a, a quite wide experience of collaborating with composers of, of our time. And for me, the important thing is to understand what their sound vision is. Mm-hmm. What this inner, let's say, this inner image that we were talking about, yes. how do they describe the sound that they want? For example, I was working with a, a composer called Panayotis Kokoras, and he was treating the piano at this particular piece we were working on as a sound object where you played on the keys, but there were lots of sounds inside on the instrument. Uh-huh. So you had to make noises on the piano tuning pegs, or on the iron frame. It's quite a lot of composers do that. Uh-huh. But you have to understand what's the particular timber that this particular composer wants. 
So what's his sound world? We speak usually with a composer and he's trying to, or she is trying to explain a little bit this sound world. And then it's my job to find the best way to do it or to propose something that goes in the same direction. But I need to understand this direction first. And this is not something that you can understand from the score, actually. Yeah. It's something different. I recently worked with a composer called Yanis Ioannidis, mm-hmm. who's now 88 years old. And we worked on a set of piano miniatures called the 44 short pieces to make a new edition of this collection. And when you see the score, you think it's something very precise, quite dry sound, really metronomic. That was my idea when I first looked at the score. And and then when I worked with him, I found out that he's a very romantic person (laughs) and he wanted lots of pedal, lots of resonance, and maybe not to be so exact on time and to let the sound vibrate. It was very surprising for me. And these things were not explicit on the score. You you couldn't really guess them from the writing. That's interesting because it makes me imagine what things we have lost through interpreting scores and how our versions of things... We we do lose uh, things. And of course, it's great to feel that you that you are holding an information, a valid information that comes from the composer, this is invaluable, I mean, it's fantastic. On the other hand, if you don't, or even if you do, but you decide to do something completely different, this has its own value as well. I mean, you cannot say that it's forbidden to do it. It's your creative freedom too. And if you manage to do something coherent that makes sense, why not then you can also do it but now coming back to this process of working with composers for example with another composer who's now dead dimitri dragatakis dragatakis comes from the northwest of greece in epirus and they have a very strong musical tradition with vocal ensembles where lots of people from the village take part And basically it's like a cappella polyphony, you know, without instruments, just with voices, but like four or five different voices. And it's a very fine and complex way of building up the music and traditional music. And when I I first saw the scores of Dragatakis, there were plenty of notes with very long values. So the piano, this doesn't make very much sense, you know, to play a note, then the sound dies immediately. It's not like a violin, you can hold the note, you know. You play, the sound fades out. And then I couldn't understand. For me, it didn't make sense as a piano writing. And then at some point, I, I did a workshop of singing in this style, in this traditional music. And I spent like 10 days of singing traditional songs in this particular style. And then it was everything became clear for me. Because in this particular style, you have very long tenutes, I mean, very notes that you hold for very, very long. And one part of the singers, they are just doing pedal note, like while the others are doing figures and are singing the the song. So I had the physical experience of singing those very long notes. Mm -hmm. And then immediately when I 
came back to the piano scores and I had to play these long notes because now in my ear their their resonance had changed and I could continue this resonance in my inner audition I mean the interpretation changed and everything made sense because for this particular composer I had to relate with the traditional music Another composer, for example, with Yorgos Kumendakis, he wrote a piano cycle called Mediterranean Desert. And when we worked together and when we spoke together, it is related with harpsichord playing, so with very fine articulation, but at the same time with Janacek and also some pieces relate with Beethoven. So it's quite a mixture of different influences and you have to be aware of all of them so that to bring elements of these different styles into a particular piece of Kumandakis, let's say. So for each composer, it's a different vision and it's a different way of exploring this universe. But it comes back to the same idea of creating in the interpreter's ears, somehow you have to listen with the ears of the composer. Uh. I mean, to what's this sound world, to feel immersed into this sound world, you know. And once you hear the music or you hear what interests this composer becomes familiar to you, then you can find solutions which go in a direction where he would probably agree with what you're doing. He cannot think of everything. He has this idea, but sometimes even when the composers are not pianists themselves, they don't know how you have to realize this idea. And very often the most original ideas come from people who are not pianists because they have an imagination that transcends the instrument and the possibilities of the instrument. So this is really challenging for a performer Uh because The composer doesn't know if this is possible or not. He thinks it is, but not very sure about it. So you have to find the way of making this possible somehow. And maybe in a different way than the one that he thought about, you know. So it's really creative because you start with this sound idea and then you have to find the way to realize it together with the composer. So this is fascinating. Yes, and it seems like there's two kinds of excitement. So you've had this experience of, as you said, when you were 13, thinking, oh, so many people have performed these pieces. And And then there's a kind of excitement of how do you perform it differently or how do you bring it just 
over the here, go mm-hmm. beyond what's been done. And then working with pieces, which I, I know that you've done, they've never been performed, they've been mm-hmm. written for you. Do you prefer when it's the first time, you know, virgin territory? Yeah, it's nice. <laughs> That's nice, of course. <laughs> and you feel really special and you feel that you add something also, you know, to yes. the piece. And maybe the composer would add something on the score because you said so and he finds it's a good idea. So at yes. the end the score has your print as well you know your fingerprint of it somehow so that that's really nice i mean it's uh, it's a collaborative process so yeah well it's very beautiful it's collaborative anyway because you're making it real what is a two dimension well mm-hmm. two, three dimension in his mind or your yeah. mind but you're making it in yeah. the world composers who you admire their music but it's hard for you to enter into their vision? Like it's just you can't wear them somehow? Yes, it can be physically difficult mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. I don't have a very big hand. Mm-hmm. And there are some composers where you have to, I mean, they or they are pianists themselves and they write for, for example, very big hands. And mm-hmm. for me, it's not comfortable at all. So this doesn't feel very good, you know, yeah. and you have to struggle a little bit sometimes. Or it's very complex music and I don't see physically in which way I would respond to that, for example. So of course there are, I think for, for everyone, there are repertoires where you feel not so much at home. But I would say even if I don't feel uh, physically at home with something and I decide not to put it in a program, let's say, I don't have any problem of grasping the, the musical meaning of something, you know, getting acquainted with a composer and yeah. with this sound world. I don't put any barrier to that. Sure. I imagine there, there are some composers which are just so draining maybe even yes, yes yes and yes. you wouldn't want to go there even though you could but yes. yeah or you think oh my god it, it and it's such an enormous amount of time and sometimes you decide not to give this amount of time for a specific work for example for various reasons but Let's say for me it's quite physical. It's a role like an actor. You can be a chameleon, but mm-hmm. sometimes you have your limits too. And mm-hmm. there are things that are more natural uh, to you than um, others. So it will sound you know, better if you are at ease with something rather than something you're struggling with. Mm-hmm. For me, it feels very natural to play pieces uh, which have uh, theatrical elements. It's just happened to be like that. I never trained as an actor or anything like that. It happens to be like that, naturally. So I like to play those pieces. I go for them wherever Mm -hmm. I find them, for example. For another colleague, that might be an extremely intimidating uh, process to speak at the same time or to act or to do something else when you play the piano. It's funny. It is interesting as I do hear it as roles and I do think there's this acting element. And I think that musicians inadvertently can be all their life training like an actor to what they say is one of the most important things, listen. And listening is something that we're not doing. Unless we're musicians, I I feel people are forgetting to listen. Yeah, so it's just my voice, my voice, my voice. Exactly. Uh, so that would, I, I think, you know, lend itself to an ability to be a comedian. So you spoke about your time in France. You were in London. You've traveled as a musician. I'm very interested in how one piece that you perform leads to another collaboration. If you could talk through some of those 
Right. Yeah. Let's say that yeah. I, I followed. In my whole career, I just followed musical inclinations, my musical taste, or my will to collaborate with someone. I never thought in terms of um, career or success or something, but in terms of, you know, human collaboration and, uh, yeah, musical project that was uh, really appealing to me. I felt very early that I had a kind of uh, duty to perform Greek composers, both, I mean, the composers, the living composers, of course, and to try to bring that work outside Greece. And also, the first half of the 20th century, Greek repertoire is not well known. So a big part of my activity and all of my recording activity is the promotion of Greek repertoire. Now I've recorded about 10 CDs and they're all Greek compositions. And what I like to do is to fill some empty holes in the repertoire to record things that have never been recorded, pieces, new discoveries from earlier repertoire or uh, just new repertoire that, that doesn't matter, you know, and to try to be exhaustive. For example, all the piano pieces of this particular composer. It's like a, a work of reference that you have everything from that composer, you know. This is a, a very different procedure from a program that you would choose for a live recital. It's not obligatory a good recital program to play an evening of the same composer for one and a half hour, you know. Yeah. It might be a little bit boring <laughs> for the audience, but in terms of recording, it's different because uh, you record a piece of work and it's there for whoever wants to refer to it. You know, it's like a dictionary, it's like a book of reference. So it's kind of different in the recitals. You need to think about the flow of energy from one piece to the other and how that relates and keep it interesting for the public. So it's more interesting to combine different composers from different periods and, and pieces. But as I said before, my work is promotion of Greek repertoire. So this, I do it through the recordings, through titles, through live performances and also through research and through writing as well. Because I think this is very important. I mean, you have to documentate why are you doing such things. For example, the composer I was talking to you about, uh, Dragatakis, then I had to edit also the scores and I wrote uh, 30 pages on why this music should sound this way or that way, you know. So the person who comes after me doesn't need to do the same go all these through these stages again. So I give what my vision of this music is somehow, yeah. but with documentation. It's not just an artistic vision. It's documented with other recordings, uh, field recordings and whatever else. So Greek music is one thing. And in general, what interests me is the promotion of the music of today. So this can be also done through organizing and through organizing festival, through commissioning new composers, through promoting young colleagues who need to get promoted. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make for me any difference. You know, sometimes I feel this work, this piece of music is really worth it, you know, and really needs to be played. But it doesn't matter so much for me if it's me who's playing it 
or if I arrange a concert for a young performer who's going to play this piece, you know. Oh, yeah. Sometimes I realize my dreams through other people, you know. <laughs> no, that's nice for them. You have your, your performance. It's just the joy of putting people together. I love doing that too. Yeah. Hi, my name is Aparna Rajiv, and I'm an associate podcast producer with The Creative Process. I'm a sophomore at New York University, Abu Dhabi, majoring in political science. It would be truly an understatement to say that I really enjoyed listening and most importantly, working on this interview conducted by Mia Funk with Lorenda Ramo, talking in great lengths about her undying passion for music and her journey of discovering the artist in herself by making music her strength and purpose. Her creative process in making music is nothing less than amazing. Being from India and having learned the basics of Indian classical music as a child, I could relate to Ms. Ramo's childhood experiences of finding a connection with music, especially Greek music, through learning to interpret it but in one's own way. And this is exactly where I think the beauty of music lies. Music is universal. It transcends languages and any sort of man-made boundaries for the reason that it has the enormous power to give rise to feelings that one has never known before. Indeed, at present when the world is slowly but steadily rebuilding itself from the ravages of the global pandemic and other challenges, these wonderful creations of music and art becomes important more than ever to both heal the wounds and pave way for a beautiful and promotion of Greek composers, past and present. And it's very hard to generalize, but what you feel is like from composer to celebration and promotion of Greek composers, past and present. And it's very hard to generalize, but from composer to composer, what you feel is like the unique character of Greek music. You know, what you find is a unifying thread that mm. if we didn't have it, as you say, there's a risk of this music not being performed if it's you know not preserved and documented yes what is that character hmm. i think today there is no unifying thread let's say the composers who are now in their 40s and there are many who are awesome really i mean they live everywhere on the planet you work with a lot who are living in france and yeah some live in france some live in germany some live in the states you name it, uh, they're everywhere and they're very good. And of course, they come from different backgrounds. You can find in everybody, maybe you will generally find some works referring to ancient Greek subjects. That's quite common. But the way they treat it has nothing to do from one to the other. You, you can't really say that there is something, a uh, unifying thread. But you keep discovering ancient figures in the titles of the pieces, mm -hmm. in the inspiration. And of course, here we have a very big tradition of theatre and of music that was written for the theatre or related to the theatre. Mm -hmm. So usually these composers, if they lived in Greece, let's say up to their early 20s, they have a background of following, let's say, uh, summer performances of uh, Greek tragedy. And uh, they're familiar with the repertoire of Greek theatre, ancient Greek theatre. So you keep 
finding elements of what we can think ancient Greek music might sound like, or inspired by a figure, for example, Medea, you have Medea coming quite often, I would say, and or ideas that have to do with philosophy, with ideas about the cosmos, about the universe, that they can turn into music, or mathematical ideas that come from Pythagoras, you know, ancient mathematicians or philosophers. So it's varied, but it's a huge pool of, you know, ideas, figures, symbols that is always there for them. But I can't see, uh, musically speaking, a a unifying thread of how they treat this, you know, these ideas and this material. Now, if we go a little bit backwards to the 20th century up to the, let's say, 70s, even 70s, 80s, then you would find that Greek traditional music is quite present in the work of Greek composers, especially in the first half of the century. It's much more obvious. So they all, in a way or another, more or less, you know, got influenced by the rhythms of traditional music, of Greek uh, traditional melodies, of the sound of the instruments, or different elements that come from traditional music. But this is not something that you find in the younger generation of the composers who are in their 40s. They don't feel, they are not really related, they don't have these memories of uh, living in small communities where traditional music making was very important. Unless uh, if they come from a village and, you know, they had this experience as children. But as we live more in the cities, you know, this kind of experience tends to to be, you you don't find it in the younger generation. We're speaking here at the conservatory. What is the musical education like for the majority? I don't know whether it's something that's available to young Greek people. Well, it's available, but it's uh, private education, Mm -hmm. so the parents have to pay for it. There are lots of music schools everywhere, but there are private music schools. So the parents decide or not, you know, to bring their child to one of these conservatories, where the level of education, it's really varied. I mean, it goes from uh, very basic to excellent. I mean, you have everything. So you have to be a little bit careful where you choose to go. And then you can take a diploma at the end of your studies. Let's say when you do that, you are in your early 20s. Then you can decide to go for a higher education. Now, in Greece, it's a little bit weird because we don't, we still don't have higher music education academy or university that is devoted to performance. There are performance departments in two music universities, but they don't have a specific level, entry level, that is required. So the level of the students, it's really varied. And it's not comparable to what you find in higher music education, conservatory or academy, where you have a very strict entry exam, where you have to have a certain level of you know, instrumental proficiency to to get into your studies. So here, this 
barrier doesn't exist for the instrumental playing. So they enter these music departments with ear tests and some harmony tests and uh, general education options, etc. And the general music level, when they finish, it's, it's quite good. But if you take only the instrumental level, that is in varied, various levels. And you cannot say that is equivalent. It might be, but it might not be equivalent to, let's say, a bachelor or a master's degree that you can find in a... So how would you like to improve the educational system for music or just the educational? What are your ideas for making music education more accessible, perhaps? Or what, uh, I mean, you spoke about having quite a good base until you were 13. And what do you wish had been part of your instruction before then? Well, I find some elements that come from the French system really interesting and really well thought out. For example that school children, there is a relation between conservatories and schools. So school children who want to do uh, music education, they can go to a conservatory and they have some hours in the conservatory inside their general school program. Now, in Greece, we have a different system at this level that works quite well. We have lots of music schools where there is a, a special focus on music where you can have a piano lessons or any other instrument lessons and so on. So the idea of these schools is just excellent. But in the way they function, there are lots of problems and this makes the general level to be not as good as it could be. For example, they change very often teacher or they don't have teachers for a certain period because the places are not filled when they should, etc., etc. So at this level, I think things are not so bad. The problem is that we don't have a music academy of higher education. But this is a, a question of political decision that has never ever been taken in Greece. Lots of colleagues of my generation uh, or older, we, we talk about this uh, in the last, I don't know, like 40 years at least, you know, and many Commissions have produced very interesting proposals for different governments and nothing had ever been concluding, you know. Right. So it doesn't matter if I have any ideas or I propose something because, again, it's a question of a political decision that has never been taken because this would go a little bit also against all this status quo of these private music schools that suddenly would go you know, wouldn't be the end of the music teaching as they are now, but they would be just a part of it. There are a lot of private interests that would be yeah. not very well served anymore. <laughs> you know, once we would have a government where they decide that, okay, now we have to do something really important for the higher music education. As far as musicology is concerned, then it's fine. We have music departments for that in the universities. But for the instrumental teaching, I think it needs a bit more effort to think a bit uh, more how you can preserve a certain level and how to raise the level, actually, mm -hmm. in the structures that are 
already existing, but then you have to make sure that the level is, is going up. And at the moment, it's not the case. It seems that you have a good system here that it could be improved. I, I see it much worse in like other countries. In America, there used to be a kind of music education, but I feel that the people don't have a very good access to it. And as mm-hmm. I listen to you speak, and I see how even if one doesn't pursue a life as a musician, no. but having a basis, I think it prepares your mind intellectually. Oh, mm-hmm. not just for memory, but all these things, as you say, body and mind are connected through music mm-hmm. in, in many wonderful ways. And to not give young people access to it and not to promote it, and also just the kind of sense of well-being and joy. I just think of music Absolutely. and joy. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we're talking about memories, but do you remember those early pieces? Is it hard to to roll back the early pieces yeah. you started on. Yes. <laughs> yes. I didn't even know this. <laughs> you have, we are going into that. We don't have to. But, uh, yeah, if you, if you. but the discovery of music. The discovery of music, it was through concerts. Mm-hmm. I mean, like uh, 14, 15, uh, where I started to go to concerts by myself. You know, I didn't need to be accompanied by someone. Yeah. I have very strong concert memories that I can recall, of course, some pieces that I've practiced, especially with this teacher that I mentioned to you, Mr. Yoryu, and like uh, Beethoven's first piano concerto, yeah, especially that one, and uh, Schumann, Opus 1, Opus 2 by Schumann, Papillon, for example, we did uh, big variations, or Debussy pieces, uh, Image, the last Beethoven sonatas, the Opus 110, and Brahms, some of the intermezzi. Each of these pieces was like a whole world. And yeah, again, it was just fascinating because he was acting them out for me, you know. And he was listening to me with his eyes closed. And I had to play in such an intense way so that he would keep his eyes closed, you know. Yeah. And he would just appreciate the music without any, not wrong note, but wrong guidance of phrase, wrong phrasing, wrong intention, let's say, something that would break the coherence of the performance. So if I would do something like that, then he was like, oops, what happened now? (laughs) No, that doesn't fit what you've done, you know. So it helped me to feel that each performance, it's like, I would say like you're making a picture on the spot and you're not allowed to stop. You start and you have to go up to the end and you know, okay, now it's finished. So this feeling is very intense for me rather than the specific music piece, you know. But as I said, the pieces I've mentioned, the the ones that I remember out the, the most. And also I have a very fond memory of my harmony teacher who composed for me especially a new piece to play at my final exam. And that was great because we had to play a piece by a Greek composer. So I, I came at the, at the exam with a new piece that was especially written for me, you know. Yes. So I was very proud of that. This is Yanis uh, Avierinos. Yes. Uh, he was my harmony teacher. It's interesting as you say that because people's truths are different. So I'm closing my eyes now. And mm-hmm. I've always felt that too, to consider the way and the truth of people's words that I like to look away sometimes to hear it. But, you know, others, I guess in this visual culture, people want you to pay attention to them with their Mm. eyes. And sometimes that's confrontational or sometimes 
I don't know if I hear the truth of it if I always look directly. Mm. I don't know, and, and you find that too. People think you're sometimes evasive. This is a kind of a, a difference with like Asian cultures that we will look away to mm. listen to you. And people think no. you're being indirect. But you're Absolutely. actually, you're actually yeah, taking them that. in. Yeah? I know that, yeah. And so it's weird. The different ways that you communicate now You've worked, you collaborate in different groups. If you talk about the different, okay, you've you've worked on music for ballet. You worked on. I I, I worked on ballet music for this great composer called Nikos Kalkotas. Yes. But that was a very specific project mm-hmm. because Nikos Kalkotas had composed some music for ballet groups, mm-hmm. which were active in Athens in the 30s and the, the 40s. And that was a repertoire that has never been played. Mm-hmm. So as I said before, I like to fill holes <laughs> in the Greek mm-hmm. repertoire. Mm-hmm. So I made a recording with all these pieces, all his ballet pieces mm-hmm. for piano. But other than that, I didn't do anything specific for ballet music. Mm-hmm. But the, for this project, I also went to the archives and I had to find out about the performances. And I found also dancers still alive who were at the first performances in the 50s, the early 50s. So they explained things to me and they taught the choreography to younger performers. Mm -hmm. So suddenly we had the choreography and I changed my interpretation because of the choreography. So it was a quite big project. This ballet music was written for, as I said, for different choreographers of that time, namely uh, Mrs. Polixeni Matei, who was a friend of Skalkotas. So the dancers that I found, Mrs. Rita Gabay, there is an interview, interview. but it's in Greek, of course. So they taught to a group of young dancers the performances they did in the 50s with Mrs. Matei. And I also wrote an article with all this documentation that we have about these performances. And it was also a part of my PhD. There's one chapter, a special mm-hmm. video devoted to that. So that's about ballet music. I know you've performed music based on uh, the novel by Pascal um, Kinyar. Yeah. Um, and you were talking before about th- compositions inspired by theater. And I spoke to, I've actually, the composer friend I mentioned. And there, do you feel? music doesn't need to hang on a story like that necessarily. When he was speaking to me, he was saying he gets inspired by looking at paintings Mm -hmm. and he hears music coming out of it. But in another sense that in this small classical music world, you know, Mm -hmm. that people have to find reasons for appreciating the music instead of like directly, like Mm. music for cinema, music for ballet, and there's that. Music is intimidating, you know, yeah. because it's very abstract. Yes. And as you said, we live in a visual culture. Mm-hmm. So visually it's, okay, we say this is a you know, cup of tea that's precise. But if it was music, then... <laughs> <laughs> you know, that would be a boring music. <laughs> you don't know how would that be. I mean, we live in a culture where we are not taught to keep our ears open. And... This has to do with how we relate also to each other, how open you are to listen to somebody else Mm. in general, I would say. We want certitudes all the time, you know. We don't like 
open things and questions and situations where what we hear is not known in advance. We liked to listen to the same tunes that we know, that we were happy to know from our parents. Maybe we discover and the, the tunes everybody listens to. And this is, you know, securizant. It keeps us insecure. But music opens, for me, this is why I like very much contemporary music, because it opens to something that is completely unexpected. You have no idea what you're going to listen to. I mean, with each composer is a different world. And what I really like is to cultivate this position to young people to keep their ears open to that and not criticize it, just to receive it and to just to, to stay open on that. I mean, it's not something that will harm you or would nothing bad will arrive to you if you listen to bizarre music, you know. So contemporary music is related for me with a general attitude of being open, being curious, being adventurous in your art experiences, in how you relate with, with the world. I like to promote it in all the different ways that I do. And we were talking on, on the way here, you ride your bicycle, and this just seems like an odd segue, yeah. but I'm just thinking about live performance, and you say you're in the moment, you're ride, you started riding your bicycle in Paris for many years, you ride it now through Athens, and it makes you feel alive, you have all your senses, you must be here, yeah. and we're in this period where everything is quite curated. I think people's experience of music, and you're talking about the ability to listen, where a lot of the contemporary music that you're, you focus on is this way, but the other forms of contemporary music, I've noticed there's a lot of auto-tuning, there's almost like machines singing to machines, correcting, and I, I find that a little bit alienating. I, I, people tell me that there are good things in that. How does that affect you when you listen to this music? Well, everything depends on the piece. Yes. It's not the process that... I'm not against any process of music making. Yes. You know, it depends what kind of music you get out of it what kind of sound and how interesting that might be. Yeah. Now we have tonight and tomorrow there's mm -hmm. a performance at the Onassi Center yes. where the music material is generated by the flow of tweets in the internet. Ah, and it's okay. called data mining. Okay. So there is a programmer uh -huh. who worked together with a composer uh -huh. and the programmer made a program where he takes this flow of data and the composer codified nine different music textures and they agreed on how they're going to translate the one to the other for the computer. Mm -hmm. And so the computer generates on live performance the score at the very moment where the musicians played it. So they don't mm -hmm. know the score before. Wow. Okay. And it comes in front of their eyes in a sort of iPad, you know, okay. and just have to play. And they're playing it on which instrument? It's six people, two percussion, uh, saxophone, clarinet, uh, violin and viola. Oh, I'd like to hear this, but what, how does it sound to you? Well, it sounded to me like yesterday we had the general rehearsal and I was really moved by this tension 
between, I felt there was a real tension there between something that is so strict, which is computer-generated music, you know. Mm. There's nothing you can do about it. I mean, you can just feed the program, but then you cannot interfere anymore. Yeah. And then these six people who, against all odds, they're trying to make music. And they have this score that they've never seen before. And it needs to be together. It needs to be expressive. It needs to make sense. They need to connect to each other. They need to have a performing energy towards the audience. And for me, it's like a very real situation in the world where we're living in. Because so many things now are generated by machines and we have to stick to that. Yeah. You cannot go beyond a certain system mm -hmm. of security, of internet manipulation, of whatever. You know, you have to do it this way. There's no way that you can pass it. Yes. And within those strict limits, you try to keep your humanity and make music, you know. So I yeah. find this... Interesting metaphor. That was yeah. really interesting, yeah. for example. So that's a situation that I found. It's really interesting because it speaks about what's happening today, now. And the tweets that generate the music is the tweets that are, you know, they're tweeting and the, at the moment of, of the concert. Wow. You know. Oh, and it's not tweets that are sent in to them either. It's not like... They are. The audience can interfere and can send tweets to a special hashtag that has to do with the concert. Oh. Yesterday they took a TV show that was going on at the same time with the performance and there was just an amazing flow of tweets, you know, mm -hmm. because the people were tweeting what was on all these series where you... Do you tweet? All. No, I don't. No, I, don't. I did. I did it yesterday with someone else's phone, you know, just to oh, interfere a little bit with the performance. So that's really new and it's really interesting. So the question is, what are you doing with the machines? I mean, how do you use it? What do you want to say with them? How do you program them? It's interesting questions because it raises questions of whether, as you said, people who are not themselves pianists, who are composers but not themselves pianists, sometimes coming up with good ideas, and that's taking it to another level that possibly if we make those technologies available to people who may have some kind of conceptual skills without knowing how to write Absolutely. music. Absolutely. And there are a lot of technologies now. Mm -hmm. For example, drawing that yeah. can be translated into music. Mm -hmm. This was a project by oh, yes. Xenakis, yes. the UPIC yeah. project. And I've tried it myself, you know, in September. Yeah. You come out with a little computer screen and then you can draw your thing and you yes. can choose some parameters and the, the thing starts to play. And it's amazing. Any kid can, can do music with that, you know. It's like two programs. Like I think it's a, the, the last uh, phase of before getting commercial and it has been elaborated by the University of Leicester in England. Mm. There are many uh, people working on how to preserve the creativity of people by bypassing all these years of education. Mm. And I believe that, of course, someone can be musical but can express this musicality without going through all this absolutely strict classical training. Mm. I mean, the traditional musicians, you know, they just played next to somebody who was next to an adult that would teach them the basic skills and they played together all the time, you know, like little children, mm -hmm. and they learned this kind of 
performing mm-hmm. style. Now in our times where you don't have these small communities where the knowledge went from the elderly to the youngsters and, and so on, we can have other we can invent other ways and, and why not? I mean to and then the machines, the, the computer programs can be extremely useful for that. It is developed so that it can adapt. I would think like movement, dance and that kind of things so, or you know, when you listen mm. to music the movements of animals is something mm. that you imagine mm. too. It it can uh, interpret that already? Of course, with sensors, yes. Yeah. I would love to experiment. Like I've seen a percussion recital once where you could see a big drawing that mm. was created at the same time with a recital because the percussionists had the sensors everywhere and all these movements were recorded and translated into drawing. That was wonderful, yeah. And with dancers as well, of course, it's possible. I'd heard about some of these things and I'd seen visualizations, but I'm not so deep in that world. And yes, if you don't mind, if it's a compliment to music, as we were talking about that, the concretizing, the abstract yeah. for people, they, they need something to remember or at least to yeah. take a photo of. So I was there. I, you yeah. know. I, I was <laughs> very proud of my little piece for, I don't know, two minutes long, this drawing. You have an ownership. You think, that's my piece, you know, it's um, wonderful. Yeah, how, how to have beautiful. That. And it's quite fascinating to a bypassing no you need the discipline of course the years of training but it is nice that I think that when you're able to show people the joy of something the play of it then that inspires them to spend those hours exactly they need to exactly exactly if you can involve them absolutely the the gratification part and then you say well now you've got to if you want to do more yeah you have to do this yeah because we have done interviews with dance companies and they you know bringing in students who don't have access to dance and Mm -hmm. involving them right away in choreography and then it's like oh we want to stay with this well but they that excitement of achieving something you you just bring them at the heart of the music making you know Mm -hmm. so this is really really valuable I mean as an experience and you help them also forming this inner audition a little bit because they start to understand the relation between high low timber you know intensity volume all these things Mm -hmm. so you develop a compositional approach to sound your own voice then yeah yeah or you can do it also with field recordings uh-huh. Like with kids going out with machines like yeah. this one, yeah. and they record the sounds of the city, of the f- of the nature, or whatever you know, mm-hmm. of their uh, laundry machine or whatever at home, and then they combine these recordings into compositions. They have patterns where they do some electronic maybe manipulation on these recordings, and they create their own sound stories. There are lots of ways to be creative with sound. And um, lots of music educators, I mean, they're working with this kind of programs, elaborate programs for schools, for example, and they use very simple material for that. It's a very good note to end on, I think, thinking about the future and the new technologies and the positive aspects, because I sometimes tend to dwell on how technology is separating us, you know? But it's nice to think about those positive elements which are making, you know, art and music more inclusive and welcome. There is a separation in the terms of composers who are very much at ease with technology and very sophisticated technology, while the interpreters are not so much. Mm -hmm. And the the interpreters who are 
really classically trained. They don't follow at the same uh, speed. So when technology is added to a notation that is already complicated and to a conception of music that is already beyond what they are used to listen to, then it adds one more level of difficulty for the approach, let's yeah. say. But on the other hand, when you listen to a piece, you listen to a global sound. I mean, there is piano with electronic sounds and the piano with the sound is transformed through the electronics. So, you know, it's something global. But as a performer, sometimes you have to manipulate pedals, a computer here, it's kind of a new technique, you know, I mean, as I was talking before about the physicality of mm-hmm. the practice, then you have to add uh, a foot pedal or you have to add, ah, I have to do this with a computer uh, yeah. while I'm playing. <laughs> it changes the, the physicality. Of. It's beautiful, I imagine, too. But yes. yeah, you have to integrate it. Yes, uh, well, when we all somehow. grow a third arm, and we, are, <laughs> we are all AI. You have to integrate it, but we cannot go, I mean, it's part of our world now, so... We better get used to it and trained and informed, I would say, and see how we can use it for, but I mean, to elaborate a little bit what we are already doing. And also reach those wider audiences. I think it's, yeah. Yeah, if it can help with that, yeah, of course. I, I'm not sure that it helps people who have no other experience of classical or contemporary music to get closer to this kind of music experience. It can be less joyful. I don't know. I mean, what if you're just a listener, I mean, it's a listening stimulus that comes to you, and it doesn't matter if it comes from a computer or from an instrument or, you know, sometimes you can have something from a computer that sounds familiar because it's a repetitive music or more easy listening music. And sometimes that comes from an instrument that is really strange and complicated. And so I think it's the music texture that is more, has to do more with how well you receive something as a, an audience rather than the medium itself. If it's a computer, if it's instruments or voices, for example, or transformed voices or whatever. It has to do with how familiar the whole uh, sound is, the whole piece to you. I want to ask one last thing, is because we're collaborating curators in America, it's coming up to the centenary of women's suffrage. So we're collaborating curators and I'm wondering what your insights are, what your thoughts are as you look back as the last hundred years, what the situation has been like for women in Greece or internationally, women in music you know, achievements or what we have yet to achieve, how has that Hmm. impacted you? Yeah. Well, there is some work to be done there, I think. The situation has now changed, I have to say, if I'm talking about what's happening now, where curators are really aware that they have somehow to include composers, women composers in their programs and sometimes we just arrive at the other edge which is not good for women I think that when you establish a quota and you say I want 50 percent if your decisions are taken at the base of the genre 
I think it's not a good decision. It has to be based uh, on the music itself. Yes. Okay. Now, if on a same level you have to make a choice, then okay, you can choose a woman instead of a man, maybe, and to give more chances. Competition reserved only to women, I don't think it's a good thing, to be honest. So if you feel obliged that you have to do 50 and 50, or only women think, I'm not sure about that, to have an awareness to promote music and to make an extra effort as a curator to find women for your projects, yes, okay, and if there's something that you like to put it in the program, of course. I think this awareness, it's now there in different music festivals around Europe at least. I've heard this and I've seen it many, many times around that people are aware of that. And certainly at the Onassis Cultural Center, we try to promote women as much as possible. But if you don't find the ideal woman composer for what you're looking for, I mean, you don't have to take one somebody just because she's a woman, you know, I mean, that's, yeah, it doesn't serve the woman, the women question either, I think. Yes, we want strong artists who happen to be women, who happen to be talented like yourself, so we can look to promote, of course. It's not just a quota. Yeah, yeah. it's not just a quota. I think it's a path that a young girl, especially in composition and orchestral conducting, it's a bit difficult to conceive. For instrumentalists, I think there's no problem. Yes. I mean, I don't consider there's a problem there. You know, in the orchestras there's a nice mixture of both and mm-hmm. women and men. I, I don't think there's a problem. But for composition, and especially uh, composition that is related to technology, mm-hmm. there we have a real problem. Uh, there are very, very few girls, you know, go towards this direction. And of course in France, too, I don't know if you have it here in Greece, where even the names the masculine and feminine. Yeah. It, it limits you, the, your conception that you can become it, you know? I've been to the CAM festival, mm. the manifest mm. some years ago. There was not one single woman. And they said mm. we were looking for, but we didn't find any. I mean, because it's a very high-tech course that mm. they're doing. And there were no applicants. There were no women applicants for that. Yeah. So maybe highly technological is still considered to be a man's thing. Yeah. We have some work to do on that, for sure. When you deal with computers, uh, then this is a man's job. Yes, I think there it's certainly uh, some work to do with that. Yeah. Well, you, you're an excellent uh, role model, an excellent artist, and I want to uh, thank you, Lorenda Ramu, for adding your voice to the creative process and all you've done for not just uh, as an interpreter, as a pianist, but to promote Greek composers, Greek music, and increase our awareness of them. And this has been the most enlightening conversation <laughs> for me. Thank you very, you. very much for thank your you. questions. I liked very much the fact that you focused on the creative process of things rather than facts and just information, mm-hmm. but how things are done from the inside. Thank actually. you. I think it's for inspiring students or people who are curious or just are on their way, you know, on that path, and they mm-hmm. want to know how it's done. You've been most generous with your Thank time. you. <laughs> Thank you. The creative process is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation, and this interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Experiential Learning Coordinator is Laura Muriano. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Aparna Rajiv. All music used in this episode 
has been performed by Ms. Lorenda Ramo. Has this interview sparked your creative process? Would you like to submit your creative work or receive information about participating or adding your voice to the creative process? Submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for a chance to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition Traveling to Leading Universities or published on our website www.creativeprocess.info. To learn more about getting involved in exhibitions or interviews, email us at team at creativeprocess.info.